0: Our book, Twin Peaks Unwrap the Book, which you can get at
1: bluerosemag.com. its 1999. What we are told could be a limited time, but supply is very limited. I know I say this every week, but I'm not making it up because we got the count and it's getting close to being done. So get your copy now. It's only $19.99. I don't know how long that price will last. So go to bluerosemag.com today. And get it for the holiday, get it for someone else that might really like it.
0: Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is Brian Kasaska.: And who else do we have
2: here? To- Hi, yeah, this is uh, John Thorne. Uh, I'm happy to join you guys again. Hey, friends, Josh Mitten, or JB Mitten, if you've read any of my stuff. Great to be here.
3: Hey,
4: this is Joel from Lost in the
0: Movies and the Unseen Players.
4: Hi, I'm Schaefer the Dark Lord from the Pink Room Burlesque. And I will be playing Special Agent Dale Cooper, Philip Gerard, Sheriff Harry S. Truman, Deputy Tommy Hawk Hill, Doc Hayward, Benjamin Horn, Maddie Ferguson, The Log Lady, and The Giant. Interior, Palmer House, night. Sarah Palmer crawls in on the floor. She appears to have been drugged, fighting to stay awake. She looks up at the living room and has a vision. A pale horse is standing in the middle of the room. Maddie enters, carrying a couple of packed bags, which she sets down, calling back to someone outside of the room. I'm going to leave these down here tonight. I'll be all ready to get an early start. Behind her in the alcove, Ben Horn comes down the stairs, stops to look at himself in the mirror. He smooths back his hair. We move to notice that the face staring back out of the mirror is Bob. We follow Ben's hand into his pocket. He takes out a pair of rubber surgical gloves and starts to put them on as he moves toward the living room. Maddie has finished fussing over her luggage. She turns and notices Sarah stretched out on the floor beside the sofa. Aunt Sarah? Aunt Sarah? As she bends over to look at her, Ben moves in behind her, raising his hands. You look like Waldo the bird. Yeah, <laughs> he does a
1: great Maddie. He does yeah, a great Maddie. Great. <laughs> really does. Nice, yeah.
4: yeah. was voiced by Cheryl Lee,
0: so there you go. Actually, Richard Beamer actually did film being the killer and Leland uh, Ray Wise and Frank Silva, but, but it's it's always fascinating. I wish we had footage somewhere out there with Richard Beamer as the killer.
2: Yeah, right. I don't think we've seen it. You, Josh? Do you think it's out there? Yeah, I mean, I, they
5: filmed it though, right?
2: They did. Yeah. But see, I think the thing is, if you know, we interviewed Richard Beamer about this and he indicates that he was used primarily for blocking the scene, primarily right. for setting up the lighting, setting up the shots. He knew that he was not the killer mm-hmm. when they were filming it. Lynch knew, of course. This was all done as a ruse just to keep the crew in the dark so it wouldn't lead to the tabloids. They wanted that revelation to be... Fresh and uh, for the viewers. So I think what footage, if it even exists anymore, isn't really the kind of intensity that we would we would maybe think it might be. I think Beamer does talk about how he has to smash Cheryl Lee's head into the picture and he says in the interview that that was a bit much. He didn't like doing that and again this gets back to the idea that Beamer was not comfortable with some of the things they were asking him to do. It would be cool to see but I'm not sure it would be it would have the impact. I don't think we would see a ferocious Ben Horn like we would like we did see Leland. I think the performance was probably, you know, kind of rote, just sort of, you know, going through the motions.
3: That's fascinating. Because also the way people talk about it, like, oh, there's a Ben scene, but you never think about it. They obviously never cut the scene. They never sound designed it. So the -hmm. most you could do is if, you know, they released the dailies of it, basically. And some enterprising soul, like, layered over the Bob Leland stuff, but it wouldn't work at all. It would really just be a curio. Which right. I think is good because as interesting as it would be, it's like, as as a curio, it's so not what the episode was going for, you know? Right. Yeah, The story is
5: almost better than the asset would, be, would have been. Right? That's
3: true, yeah, 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 that's true.
5: I was reading through reflections on this episode before we, we started this today, and there were a couple of, of little tidbits I thought were interesting that Brad caught from a guy, Philip Carneal, who I'd never heard from him before, but basically said that Lynch wanted to, the mixers to mix it blind so they would see no visuals, and they would have had to edit the scene, you know, the audio, the music, everything, without knowing what was going to be visually presented and the guy was like David we just can't we can't achieve that but then when I'm thinking about watching it like you almost could have because it was a lot of slow motion and you know it was very violent of course but I I just thought that was really interesting that that was the lengths to which they were willing to go to to keep it secret from as Mm. many people as
0: possible. It is one one of the most violent things I've ever seen on television. I mean, we're talking about network television here. I mean, it was so intense. And I remember watching this episode originally and being like blown away. It's like, what did I just watch? I can't believe I've just seen, you know, a murder
2: like that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) When you were talking earlier about this with, with Ben Horn and how he's like Jeffrey Epstein and yet the show just kind of glosses over it. It's interesting with Twin Peaks because it goes to these dark places And at other times it sets itself up as something that won't, like there's a tacit understanding with the audience of what type of show or thing you're watching. And David Lynch always pushes that. He has an interview before season one came out where uh, he and Frost, I think are both talking about where is that line? How do you cross it? How do you not cross it? And he says something like, you know, the, the letter under the fingernail is right along that line of Mm -hmm. there's a line, but you can't cross it. But I think he does cross it in this episode and it's, it's actually very effective that he does that. But the reactions to it are very odd and interesting. A lot of the critics just write about it. Like they didn't just see what we know they saw. They're like, Oh yeah. So it was, it was Leland moving along. It's like, wait a second. What, What do you mean moving along? That was, you just watched the same thing we did. The only, response I've I've read from the time, from like an actual published critic or anything. I, I've seen some that kind of allude to the power of it and talk about <laughs> it in a larger context of the series, but like actual direct responses to the episode is Warren Goldstein in the magazine, I think it was a Catholic magazine, Commonweal, and it's called Incest for the Millions. And mm-hmm. it talks about the way the show leads you along to think it's this kind of fun, racy thing, and then whams you at the end with this story of abuse. And he reacts very negatively to it, Mm. which I think, again, is an honest uh, account of his feelings. And I think he is onto something in that show does kind of play with this idea of, oh, we're a fun mystery, we're a fun procedural. Guess who did it this week? It's all a parlor game. And then to whack you with that and, and have you confronted with the reality and the ugliness of it he has a line in there. It's like a husband slowly poisoning his wife week to week with stronger doses until mm-hmm. it's too late. And she realizes, but, it, you know, it's been, mm-hmm. and he feels like that's what was done here. So I think there's some truth to that. But I also think that in a way is to the show's credit. And I don't think it was done way. I mean, I think it was done both consciously and unselfconsciously at times. I, I think, you know, Lynch doesn't necessarily reflect on this stuff. Um, he does in his process, but he doesn't like intellectual. And I think, you know, Frost was kind of going along and seeing where it went as well. And uh, the show ends up being a meta commentary on the way that the media will kind of spin sexual violence as entertainment. And it almost kind of refutes itself in that way, if it makes sense. Like what it's critiquing is in some ways Twin Peaks. In this scene you know um. so i don't think it's as simple as as saying twin peaks is just a refutation of these kind of tropes i think it it does embody them as well it's the embodiment and it's the refutation and the fact that it embodies it before refuting it in some ways way more powerful mm-hmm. um, particularly when you get to the point of firewalk with me and it's almost like a critique of the TV show that it wouldn't exist without. So mm. there was a thread this past week or two on the Funko pop toys by uh, yeah. someone whose username I, yeah. is uh Findom Earl, which is pretty funny. But uh she put up this this thread about like, why do they have a Funko doll of like Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic? That's kind of <laughs> grotesque. And and there was all these interesting comments and people responding about like what the show meant to them and Laura Palmer and Cheryl Lee and all that and I just thought that was kind of another interesting like even these 30 years later that kind of grappling with the different things that Twin Peaks is is still going on and if you remember at this time that summer they had like Women We Love and it was like Cheryl Lee wrapped in plastic on the cover so they were mm-hmm. always the media mm-hmm. was and the show encouraged it at times you know the media was always playing this kind of coy game with is this fun? Is it just a lark? Or is this like a really dark um, exploration of these themes? And this is the scene where you really, really get the, the flip over to know this is a dark exploration of these themes. There's nothing, you know, this is, the, this is arguably the first moment in the series where, uh, you know, it's always a hazy distinction to make but you could say this is the first moment in the series where it truly becomes just QR art and not entertainment. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Joel, it's
0: funny, I was, I was, you know, I'd gone back to uh, different uh, articles from 1990, and they were talking about like merchandise, what kind of merchandise should we do for Twin Peaks? And the PR person or the person talking about doing merchandise said, well, we'd never do a uh, doll of a uh, Laura Palmer- <laughs> Oh <Plastic>. God. <laughs> I mean, like who would do that? Like that would be a terrible merchandise <laughs> And then here we are. <laughs> <laughs> here we are so any of you guys here, have yeah. that
1: doll. I do. Yeah. Oh yeah, I got everything right. And there's there's Is it
2: displayed in the package. There's two of them. There's two. There's a Whoa. Funko Pop, and then there's also. a okay.
0: oh, right, fresh. yeah, yeah it's right? The four
1: pack action like, figure. It, yeah, the four I pack. Know. It's got Cooper, Laura. I'm oh looking at it right Bob. now. Log Lady, Bob. and I forgot Bob. about the action figure ones. Right. Here,
0: here it is. Yeah, yeah. Right there, yeah. <laughs>
2: there, there, there it is. I mean, I, I tweeted out, especially when the Pops were first released back in 2017, I guess, I said I thought it was a bad idea. Um, mm-hmm. I was complaining more about Bob than I was about Laura, but even <laughs> so. Um, and I got a lot of pushback. A lot of people were like, well, they do Freddy, you know, Krueger, and they do um, Halloween, Mike Myers. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, this is kind of, I know it seems like it's the same thing, but really, it really isn't. It's different.
1: Yeah.
2: And yeah. it just doesn't seem like it's it, a, a toy. Anyone I mean, who's I know seen not toys.
5: interactive fans. I know her for think. adults. Um,
2: is
0: Laura Palmer 17? Is she, she died at 17? Is I there, thought she was 18. Was she well, it's 17 she in the show, 18. but it's
2: 18 in Frost's book. Uh, so there's a little... I
0: will say she's a child. This is a child wrapped in plastic action figure. Right.
1: right. right. Exactly do you guys yeah. think here's a question for you guys it's a product obviously of it's time i think as a society and as a people and everything we have matured we've all changed and i think the climate has changed all for the better a show like this coming out now i don't think you would see that um because it was part of the pulp culture zeitgeist and it was all about i mean just for example i I don't remember who just mentioned the reviews about the gloss over. Oh, Leland's the killer. Let's move on. I feel like it was very surface level because yes. network television very. network television is not deep. It wasn't a deep thing. Um, so I feel like the discussion about how deep and dark Twin Peaks is probably happened later in its life. Um probably it's a shame it didn't happen when it was broadcast it's a shame that like on surface level it's quirky it's weird everybody wants to know the killer but nobody dug deeper and that uh joel you write up that article in that christian newspaper and i think that's great that person had a negative feeling about this and actually dug deeper and i feel like maybe that's not that wasn't a popular thing to do Where, where i agree totally i let's move
3: on you know best writing that i've seen contemporaneously on firewalk with me in particular but maybe on twin peaks in general is from these like small alt weeklies or like a a more of a regional Mm -hmm. newspaper like probably the best review i've read of firewalk with me in 92 is by i can't remember i can't remember his name now but it's the buff it's like the buffalo news Uh, i think it's jeff simon because there's a john simon and it wasn't it was not him uh, he's kind of a notorious critical figure. But I think this guy's name was Jeff Simon. And, you know, not like a major nationally known critic that I, I think at the time, maybe John would, would know better. But I, 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 like this was a sort of obscure review that I found online raving about the film. And this is a guy with a sort of countervailing view. He's actually, the review is very critical of like the new Hollywood directors who emerged in the 60s and 70s. He thinks they're a little too obsessed with film as film. And that the generation coming up then, like Spike Lee, I think he mentions Oliver Stone, maybe, and David Lynch, some of whom are the same age as those directors, but sort of didn't make their first breakthroughs till the late 70s or 80s, that they have a more interesting approach where their films are more engaged with the world. And he sees Firewalk with me very much that way. And there's nothing like that in any the other writing on it is very, very glib. Aside yeah. from just being wrong, it's just totally dismissive. This is just a product. Um, and these are people who would, if presented with, you know, sort of the official art film of the year, write something much more thoughtful, but they just accepted that this was just product,
1: that mm, right. Lynch
3: is basically a circus carnival barker. And, uh, you know, they would write about blue velvet differently, but the the this was a different zeitgeist. So now Lynch was... To be treated with
0: contempt. <laughs> at least for that time period, Lynch's uh, popularity had faded. i mean It seemed like I mean, we had Wild at Hard and we had Twin Peaks, but people were kind of over him. At least at that time period, it, it seems like. Yeah. They...
1: Just to go back to the merchandise, real thing. I, 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 just, I just I just feel like it's a product of uh, the time, and it, I agree with you, John. And I'm, I'm sure we we all own like we own it because mm-hmm. we, we like it. Um, but it is morbid. If they didn't put it out, I wouldn't own it. Obviously. Um, I, I think the best thing that kind of um, that just came out last year was the movie The Joker. No merchandise. Mm. People were mm. like, "Where is the merchandise? Why the that. hell that's would you <laughs> want merchandise from the Joker?" Because it's about it's it about mental pro- <laughs> it, it's, Yeah, but there so, is no T-shirts. There's no pop figures, and that's something they said we that. don't we don't want merchandise for this film because it's not a movie for merchandise. And I mm. think. If Twin Peaks had come out now, I mean, well, we had season three. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah did it did come come out. Out.
3: That's, yeah, the Funko was for season three, right? Yeah. No, yeah. No, no, no. No, think it's about, based on old characters, it, though. I, the, well, the, yes. The,
2: yes, I, yes. Yeah. I think, I think what happened with the merchandising of Twin Peaks, my guess, and this is just a guess, is that Lynch was resistant to merchandise. Mm. Um, but a deal was made that they would merchandise the 1990 show. Right. Um, now, they have merchandised the new show. There's no figures. Yeah. There's no, yeah. There's no Dougie action figure. Action Which I would figure. definitely I buy. Dougie in Dougie action, action figure.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: There's no... Um, that would be about the most... Right. That's pretty funny. A Dougie action figure. grip. He's got no articulation. He just just stands
1: there. (laughs) He would be the only (laughs) one you could do it with, really. But, like, yeah, if you look at season three, it's like the Joker. There's no real merchandise. There's T-shirts, and there's
2: a calendar, and there's some of in his cards. I mean, there is merchandise, without a doubt. But there isn't some of this toy-like merchandise. There isn't – well, I, I guess, really, ultimately, there's no, fi- there's no figures. There's no yeah, right. yeah. uh, There's no Mr. C figure, which really would be an awful thing. I mean, it would yeah. be a terrible thing. I mean, he's Why would you pure want that, right? evil. Yeah. I think there was some discussion or decision-making. It might have been Lynch Frost together. I was like, okay, we're open to doing something on the original show. Hmm. But yeah. we're going to yeah. keep this new show. And, you know, never know things might change and they'll do something because things are always coming out. But So you guys are protected a... by the packaging. So I was gifted one of these Laura
5: Palmer Funkos in the wrapped in plastic out of the package. It had already been opened. Someone just had an extra and they gave it to me. And I'm thinking like, what the hell do I do with this thing? So I actually have it set up, but I have three other Funkos standing over her in a funeral-like <laughs> pose. I have Mr. Rogers, I have Jon Snow, and I have Stephen King. <laughs> all standing over her in funeral pose, which is about the best thing I could have done with
2: that thing. <laughs> Mr. Rogers. Rogers. He's a pop figure? Um, yes. I had a couple of comments on the Bob Kills Maddie scene, and they follow up on some of what Joel was saying. There's a couple of things. So let's, first, we're talking about the script. The script does not describe any of the action that, that Lynch shows. Um, in fact, the script is pretty specific and it sort of fades to black. And I think the intent when Frost wrote it was that Maddie was going to be essentially killed off screen. And I I don't think they necessarily were planning what Lynch did. I've heard some, and this might've been in the article that Joel was commenting on, and it might've been another contemporary article. But I remember from the time, there was some reporting that was done that said um, that the network brass did not know that this was coming that they didn't know that this was going to happen, and it was shown, sort of slipped past them. And it was put on the air without them realizing how violent it was. And I've heard also, and this may be from some of the actors at festivals or, or something, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. The ABC was no longer supporting that show. They, they just let it die uh, because of that. Um, now, that, I don't know how true that is, but I, I think there may be sort of a kernel of truth to that. I do think that Lynch kind of slipped that in. I don't think anyone really knew. I'm um, not sure Frost really knew mm, what Lynch was going, about to, that. was going to do. And he, he, he ends up depicting this brutal, horrible murder. It's worse than what's depicted in Fire Walk With Me. Just as a personal anecdote, I watched this episode with my wife and we had a friend come over. Uh, to watch it. You know, this was the episode where we were going to find out who the killer was. So that was really the big deal. you know. I was like, this is the reveal. We're going to find out who Bob really is. She was watching it with us. And when it got to the scene with uh, Maddie getting killed, our friend turned away from the TV. She turned her head and she put her mm-hmm. hand up like this against her eye uh, mm-hmm. so that she would not look. She was literally repulsed by what was being... T- uh, repulsed is a strong word. It was, she couldn't stomach what she was watching. It took her by surprise. It wasn't network TV, and she did not want to watch it. I have actually gone to a viewing party. So I did this. I wrote about this on a Plastic a long time ago, like number five or something. I was invited to a party, quote-unquote, viewing party. A bunch of college students were watching Twin Peaks for the first time, and they were watching this episode. They didn't know what was coming. And when that scene came, I stopped watching the show. I turned and watch the audience. So I could see an audience watching this scene react to it in real time in the, for the first time. And it was quite striking to see the mouths open and to see the tension, to see people move their hands up against their chests. It's just such a shocking sequence. And I don't think anyone, including maybe even the actors, knew what this was gonna be until after it was done and edited and put on TV. I think it took a lot of people by surprise.
0: And you know, a lot of Twin Peaks, you think of like all this beautiful music and there's quirkiness and there's silliness. And this is like, it's slowed down, it's very intense. It's probably, a lot of people probably weren't expecting something like this.
3: Can we go around somewhat quickly? I know Brian obviously has already shared this cause that was the whole show. But like what your kind of first reaction was to this and like how you remember going into it, if you knew who the killer was going to be and if Maddie was going to die and how you how it kind of how how it hit you the first time around, I guess. And I'll share my own kind of memory of it.
2: Well, I'll go first because I watched it. I think maybe a band watched it uh, when it first aired yep so november 10th 1990 i mean i you know we were all this was the big big episode this is the episode that since april 8th of that year we've been waiting for this it was advertised and, um, it was
0: episode to, that would find out who killed laura palmer i mean yeah TV this was I, it and
2: there was an ads in tv guide and i think there were ads that abc showed that said uh-huh. things like uh tonight find out who or you know this week find out who killed laura palmer no, really, because they kind of promised that in the second season premiere, and, and in fact they delivered. It was we found out it was Bob, but the mystery then became who is Bob. So we were going to find out who what Bob was that night. Well, like I said, I had I had a friend in the room. I was distracted somewhat by her because I could see how she was really viscerally reacting to this. Um, I remember being um, shocked for sure, kind of stunned that this was on TV. I mean, I. I kind of watched TV with a critical eye and, you know, you know we're really involved with Twin Peaks. I, I was also thinking about it in terms of television. It's just really kind of stunned that they would show that. But then on a plot level, obviously, wow, it's Leland. And wait, Maddie's dead? <laughs> you know, now what does this mean? Obviously, the anticipation for the next episode was just that much higher. Once you get past the shock, And maybe we'll talk about this in a minute, because there is a scene that follows the death that um, depressurizes the episode. And that is Cooper. Um, And that's my favorite scene in all of the original series, Um, that that sequence in the Roadhouse, which we can talk about later. It was super shocking. But then after you get past that, um, you were just that much more excited, I think, to find out where the story was going to go.
0: Yeah, I saw it originally when it aired, I was by myself. I probably was in my room watching the show. I had no idea who the killer was going to be. And I definitely was definitely shocked to find out that it was Leland. Like I never, like, you know, putting that together, that means like, what, her own father would do this? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, how is that possible? And even uh, that, they were building up that it was gonna be, but then I was sort of thinking like, is there even time to finish it? Because like, Cooper's going to the Roadhouse? Like, wait a minute, how are we gonna find out who the killer is when he's just sitting around eating peanuts? I'm sure I was one of those people that probably had my hands to my chest as well, and like, I was just taken back by how horrific it was. So it was a de- very intense. Same time, it blew me away, probably the Roadhouse scene too. They'd be like, wow, this is on television. Like, like, this is David Lynch. Like, it's just unbelievable. Like, I've seen nothing like this on television ever. I mean, it just, it was unbelievable.
2: You reminded me, Ben, that I do remember watching that scene and thinking, how are they going to save Maddie? How mm. are they going to get to her in time? What, Cooper's still sitting there. He's got to get <laughs> up and get moving. Someone's going to run in at the last second and save her. And I know I felt that like couldn't believe that she was being killed that you just reminded I've forgotten about that feeling that feeling of well surely she'll be rescued yes. and then it didn't happen and it was really really stunning and, and um numbing that mm. that didn't happen
5: I was uh with Scott Ryan and my wife and his wife And this was uh, Scott Ryan at the peak of his love for Twin Peaks. So this was before (laughs) Blue Rose magazine and season three came back. It was before the tweets went out saying it was coming back. It was in a period of time that you guys have never seen Scott before. He was in full peaks (laughs) mode. We had donuts every episode. Like Um, You had to read Laura Palmer's diary after 14 aired. So (laughs) it was a solemn experience. I mean, it really was. Uh, Now, here's the caveat, though. So this is post Sopranos and there is a season of the Sopranos for those of you who have watched it, where Tony Soprano murders in cold blood Gloria Trillo, and is arguably the most violent murder of a man against a woman that I had ever seen up to that point. So this was very mild actually compared to, mm. to what I had experienced in, in watching that. And what I found in going back to rewatch it is I've actually become much more sensitized to what happened in that scene than I was the first time I watched it. I was a lot more callous and callow, I want to say. It was 10 years ago, you know, forgive me. But um, it was also before I had experienced season three 12 times or whatever it is that I watched (laughs) it. It was extremely violent when I went back to rewatch it. uh, Almost as violent as Mr. C's Murder of Daria, which is the only other thing in Twin Peaks. Uh, besides the firewalk with me murder scene, which I think stands on its own. You know, it, it it really hit me the second time I saw it. But the first time I, I wanna I wanna say I just didn't really react to the level of violence in the way that I should have, and that's on me.
1: Brian? Mine? Well, I, I watched this with you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> me and Ben watched this together. I thought it was me, Ben Horn. I've had a, a lot of emotions. I think I was like, wow, you know, I grew up watching network television, so I put myself in that frame of mind because Josh to go right along the same lines you are at this point in my life I've seen a lot of the golden age of television as we say I've seen a lot of things on television and I'm to the point where I'm watching streaming stuff I don't consider things network anymore it's just I saw it on a platform and I feel like those lines have been so blurred that it doesn't matter anymore but when I watch that episode with Ben, in my head I'm like this was on ABC. This was on in the early 90s. I remember those times. I was a huge TV fan. I watched so much television in middle school and high school. So I was shocked. I was taken aback about the violence um, I saw. And it, it was shocking in a way that I'm like, wow, this was on ABC. This was on network television. But at the same time, I was just like, well, I have seen worse. It's like a frame of mind where it was first aired, the context of the whole thing. It's almost too much. You do want to look away. It is brutal. And it is a shame that the culture wasn't different back then, that they could talk openly about what happened on a deeper level it's a a missed opportunity i'm i'm happy the culture is at a point where these things are talked about openly so i i, I think times have changed and i think this seems you know the whole story arc is very important to a lot of people in it and um that's that is the lynch like here's that moment and then you have that co- palate cleanser afterwards which he does he seems to do that a lot
3: yeah i think um, I, in some ways, have a combination of some of your experiences. Like, I was watching it alone on a computer, actually, because this was early days of Netflix DVD, I guess, after the Gold Box came out. So I watched it all in pretty quick succession. And I remember getting this disc and, like, going up to where the computer was and just, like, almost being kind of excited, like, all oh, right, this is the killer reveal. I knew that Maddie was going to die. That had actually been spoiled for me because of YouTube. I looked up a video of Bob climbing over the couch. And at the end of it, all of the next videos popped up, the titles for them. And one of the Mm -hmm. titles was Bob Kills Maddie.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: So I knew Maddie was gonna die, but I didn't know who Bob was. Mm -hmm. So the killer's reveal actually wasn't spoiled. For me as well, the like brutality of the murder, it hit me in a different way. It was like very kind of almost cold and alienating i got more catharsis from the um from the roadhouse scene that followed it that was where the emotion seemed to kind of flow like the killing itself just like a little too much i and i didn't know what to make of it in the context of the show because i was uh i was coming from film i didn't watch that much tv i watched a lot of movies and i'd seen you know about i think i'd seen salo at that point so i mean i'd seen everything you can do in a movie so it wasn't necessarily the level of violence that was so shocking is the fact that, God, like I'd let myself get into the mindset, the mentality we were talking about before where it's like, it's a fun mystery. You take it somewhat seriously, but not too seriously. Mm. You know, it's, it's David Lynch, but it's also kind of a soap opera murder mystery thing. And so I felt kind of taken aback by that and almost kind of like coming down from it after, just like, oh, that was the killer's reveal. It was a great episode, and I knew I'd seen probably the best episode so far. But just feeling that kind of uncomfortable because uh, not so much because of Maddie's murder, because I knew she was going to die. Not so much because of the level of violence, because like I said, I think it was only years later that that really that I really felt the emotional weight of it. But more from the fact that it was Leland, and that obviously if he killed her, that meant this was like all about incest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think that's what I can relate to that kind of that article that the author wrote in the Commonweal magazine where it's like, well, wait a second, wait a second. They were letting us have fun and enjoy ourselves with this story that was about incest. I don't know about that. Mm. And then I kind of went along, you know, with, okay, Bob's the spirit and all this stuff, but it was, it planted a seed and that, that really came to fruition. Um, in my case, only a week or two later when I watched Firewalk with me and then it just kind of exploded all of that sort of buried subtext of what it was all about. And that's actually the only piece of Twin Peaks that I responded to in real time. Like I wrote a review of Firewalk with me, which is a somewhat critical review. And this has sort of gone on to become my favorite film in a lot of ways, but where I grapple with, well, wait a second, if this is really about this serious issue of sexual abuse, why are we putting all this supernatural Lore stuff into it. I don't want that. Get rid of the Twin Peaks. Get rid of Agent Cooper. I just if you're going to make this movie, then make this movie. And I couldn't deal with it being both things. And then hmm. since then I've sort of adapted to that more and kind of understood how he keeps those things in tension, but part of me has always seen it as this, like, a firewalk with me specifically, but I think it has its roots in this episode, has always seen it as this psychodrama that kind of spread like Twin Peaks is the genesis that allows that psychodrama to exist, but the psychodrama of it is the thing. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. the blossom and Twin Peaks is the stem, if that makes sense. So like Twin Peaks gets us to fire walk with me. And then I think eventually, when I got back into Twin Peaks, it was sort of a reconciling of those two worlds. But the third time I watched it, because I I did a rewatch series right after where I went back and reviewed all the episodes, that year, but the the third time I watched it was about six years later, and I actually was watching Twin Peaks on my phone, which you're not supposed to do. David Lynch, very explicitly says, "Do not," you know. But I was like, I think I woke up one morning. I was like, oh, it's episode, I'm on episode 14 now, and I just kind of put it on, and the scene just devastated me. All of a sudden, the intervening years or whatever it was hit me like a ton of bricks, and that really, I think, that was kind of the emotional kickoff to the then the rest that was 2014 when you know the show came back and the missing pieces came out and everything it Mm -hmm. was before all of that but that was kind of the emotional route from that point forward of me dealing with twin peaks and how i talked about it and thought about it and everything like that
5: out of uh brad duke's book there was uh the lady who edited the the music into the scene said they actually tried to put that scene with no music Hmm. and it was way too intense now think about mm. what yeah, that right. scene would have been like with no music and they had to actually add music in there to soften up the terror mm. uh but think of mm. what the lesson that was learned by david lynch and um, and whoever else edited that like and how that played into the return with no music and and how that was displayed it just it kind of hit me from <laughs> like that's a good lesson learned yeah no music means more intensity
4: Interior, sheriff Station, night. Truman, Cooper, and Hawk enter with Ben Horn. The log lady is waiting in the reception area. She rises. Cooper notices her, looks to Truman. Truman speaks to Hawk. Take Mr. Horn down to the holding cell. Hawk and Horn move off. Cooper moves to the log lady. Truman follows. The log lady speaks to Cooper. You must go to the roadhouse. Everything points that way. Why? She gestures to her log. It won't say but it insists. Cooper looks at Truman. We can't question Horn till his lawyer gets here. He's flying back from Japan. Won't be here till morning. I could use a beer myself. Cooper takes another look at the log lady. All right. Interior, roadhouse, night. Cooper and Truman enter, move to the bar and order beers. The singer on the stage begins a new song. What do we do? I don't know. Wait. They watch the band. It's an emotional song filled with regret and longing. People lean forward, drawn in by the song, but also by a mounting palpable sense of tension and fear in the air. Cooper picks up on it, looks at Truman, who feels it as well. In mid-song, the band vanishes from the stage. The giant appears in the center of the stage. He looks right at Cooper.
2: It's happening again. It's happening
4: again. Cooper appears to be the only one who sees him. He looks again, unsure of what he's seen. The giant fades away, replaced by the band once again, who finishes the song. Cooper sits stock still, shocked by what he's seen. Truman looks at him. Cooper? Cooper? Someone pats Cooper on the shoulder. Cooper looks up. It's the old room service waiter from the Great Northern Hotel. His eyes are filled with tears. He shakes his head, pats Cooper on the shoulder again, and moves off. Cooper stares straight ahead. He's killed again.
1: Great giant. Great giant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice job Schaefer, nice job. Yeah, he did an awesome job.
0: But you know, when I originally saw this, you know, back in 1990, I wasn't sure if Cooper had a vision. I wasn't sure if Cooper had seen the whole mm. killing of Maddie. It was always kind of mm. like did we just witness that and then the script is kind of like he he knows that he's killed again, whereas in the series, we don't know in the next episode Cooper just kind of goes off on his, like nothing's happened at all, really.
2: But I guess the first thing I thought of when I was listening to that, the way it was scripted, and it and it's true of the final episode too, is the log lady comes in and says, you got to go to the roadhouse. And, and and they go to the roadhouse, which is like the wrong place to go. I mean, yeah. uh-huh. instead of, you think the log would be go, go to the Palmer house, and go <laughs> now. And so I don't know, quite know how you make narrative sense of that other than the giant, was at the roadhouse and the emotions are certainly at the roadhouse. And of course you can make an argument that the roadhouse itself is some supernatural place. Hmm. Uh, it certainly is, I think in season three, but the, the, the scene, the way it, it's shown on screen is uh, someone asked me, I think you guys were there when we were in Virginia at the, uh, at the bookstore and we did a little panel and um, uh, someone asked the panel to pick their favorite scene from Twin Peaks. Mm. Uh, we hadn't had season three yet. And I think they were asking just, just the series, not the film. But that scene in the roadhouse is my favorite scene of the entire 30 episodes. And again, just to be sure, it, it, it's not the scene where Bob killing Maddie. It's a scene in the roadhouse where Cooper is watching. Julie Cruz is singing uh, my favorite Julie Cruz song, which is The World Spins. And Cooper gets a sense of something happening. He's, he's in touch with something going on. And Lynch is just Lynch here. It's perfect Lynch. When Donna starts to cry, she doesn't know why she's crying. She's, she's mm. crying. And, and she moves around to James. And James is stunned. He doesn't know what to do. And then I think probably the, you know, the scene that seals it is Bobby. When Bobby turns on the stool and just knows if something's happening. Um, Lynch was was showing the the characters feeling what, in some ways, obviously they didn't know the brutality of what had just happened. But they knew that there had been something terrible that had happened. And, And that scene allows us to feel it. It allows us to feel it through those characters. And it's not just Donna obviously crying. It's Bobby trying to comprehend it. It's Cooper reaching, reaching out with his mind to figure it out. It's the old waiter coming over and saying, I'm so sorry. That scene, I mean, that scene is so important to what has just happened. If we had just had that brutal murder and it ended there, I'm not sure how I would feel about that episode and that. But that scene, I mean, that is the one that ties it together, that releases the energy, that, mm. that allows us to connect with the characters to understand a little bit more about what the import is of what we just saw. I could watch that scene again and again, and i just make one comment And in, in season three when Bobby looks into the window of the, of the woman in the car and the young girl comes up, he makes that same kind of expression where he yeah. is trying to figure out what is happening and he can't comprehend it. And I think Dana Ashbrook should be given credit for a, a, some two really, really very tiny but significant performances that um, convey confusion and concern so maybe
3: i missed it if john mentioned it but another interesting thing about the bobby scene is of course the actor just came onto set to drop yeah. by he wasn't supposed to yeah. be in the scene <clears throat> yeah, i love that, I love lynch that. Adds lynch well. says, why
0: don't you come into the sh- shot why don't you yeah. yeah lynch
3: was like get him in wardrobe put some makeup on and sit <clears throat> down at the bar and like you <clears throat> said it just makes that scene
5: john made a point about what's going on here and it's like uh, the bob dylan song you know, there's something that happened in here, but you don't know what it is. And that's also Cooper in that scene, right? What really caught me as I was watching it was the end. So it's Cooper with the red curtains of the roadhouse behind mm-hmm. him, kind of this face over the screen and I even texted John when I watched it I took a screenshot of it I'm like dude this is part 17 this is Cooper's (laughs) face superimposed over what's happening and why of all characters would Cooper be the one to get this red room seizure let's call it happening at the time of this murder so you know John to your point about all of these people feeling this emotion as this murder is happening why in the world didn't they feel this during Laura Palmer's murder that was mm. the thing that set this all off. Why suddenly is the whole town sensitive about this girl who's not even a member of the town getting murdered? Is it because something has emerged from the depths of the darkness in the woods around Twin Peaks and now everyone is sensitive to it? Like something's changed
0: mm-hmm.
2: in this
5: moment than it was in the pilot when, murder, when Laura Palmer was murdered and even in
2: Fire Walk With Me while it's happening, right? That's a good point, and it's important to remember that Laura Palmer's death, maybe not her actual moment of murder, but her death resonates in the pilot and even through season one. I mean everyone is reeling from this death. Um, and then death becomes death and murder become commonplace and overlooked and sort of um, marginalized in the narrative. Characters die, and um, maybe if you just look at the end of season one potential is that Catherine Martel is dead, Jacques Renault is dead, and people are just like, they're dead, you know, and, and it yeah. doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And Lynch brings back the emotion of loss again in this episode. And and it really won't come back again in the series. The idea of what death and murder but, but the loss of someone really means. So I, I, I value it for that. You may be right, you know, once Laura died, it did release something into the, into the world and people became more aware and this is an example of that. People are in tune with something, but only when Lynch is directing because <laughs> when those other characters die in other episodes, it's murder she wrote, step over the body and move on. So yeah, you're yeah. saying
3: heavy metal dude did not descend <laughs> to the level of...
2: <laughs>
0: And John, no, you're not counting Doug season Raimi. three, right? You're not counting season three. No, 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 three no, no. Just, days.
2: just, just up through, um, up through season end of season two. And I, I'm trying to think. You know, the final episode of season two. I don't think. I mean, there's some emotion that's released there, and there's some conflict that happens, but. I don't think there's anybody who dies and there's any great... Well, Le- Leland dies. I mean, L- Leland dying is a very emotional um, moment as well. Yeah, that's a big yes, one. Yes.
0: Not by the... No doubt. No, no doubt. Now,
2: but even, even then, Leland's dead and we skip ahead three days and then we get a comical um, wake, <laughs> you know,
1: a reception with the, you know, it, it, It's it, not quite it, saying. It, it loses its potency.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it goes back to product of its time and then with David Lynch, uh, his style. Yeah. Mm-hmm
0: in that alternate or script version there it's interesting that uh, that Ben Horn's lawyer is in Japan and will, it won't be back until the next day so they're not going to question him and it, you mm-hmm. know it'll be a few episodes later that it'll be Leland will be his lawyer again which never <laughs> makes no a- sense
3: ever, like, yeah. I hate that I hate right. that
0: Ben it yeah. might have killed your your daughter and sexually abused him, but could you be a lawyer? <laughs> yeah, right. It's that is such
3: to me, and I know people have sort of made rationalizations of it, but that to me is the quintessential example of the writers just not thinking things through. Because mm-hmm. it's right. like, well, he's a lawyer, and he's <laughs> just what that could be how they get him in the cell. Aren't we clever? And like Pat, maybe yeah. that's a little mean, but that's how it feels to me. Yeah. It's like, yeah, guys, it's also her father. Come on. Right. Like, that, again is that network yeah. dynamic.
2: We have yep. the actor here. We're not gonna hire a new actor. Let's just right. use use what we've got. Yeah.
3: Well, yeah. and I think they wanna get him into the cell and that's the oh, trick. Sure. But it's like nonetheless, like even if he knows or he, yeah, I don't know. That's a whole other episode.
2: <laughs> I, I I agree. I think if Lynch had directed that episode, he would have probably thrown parts of that script away and found a different oh, motivation God. to get Leland there. And Leland right. would have been angry and he would have been there to to confront Ben Horn. That would yeah. have been the way they manipulated him into the scene. It's something like that. Doesn't yeah.
3: it feel, though, like he could never, there's no alternate universe where David Lynch directs that episode. Like, I just, it's yeah. so impossible yeah. to imagine him directing that to me. And I've heard people say, like, oh, if only he had directed it because, you know, it's such an important episode. But it's so antithetical. And so, you know, and there's things I like a lot about that episode. And I think Martha Nockamson has actually made this sort of interesting argument that she actually finds it, and, and you know, I think credibly in some areas, to be kind of an unusually an episode for a non-lynch. Like the fact that the answer comes to him through the dream and Laura mm. is the conduit for it and all that. And that's great, but just the way it's executed on the page, there's no way to imagine him kind of... He would have had to do what he did with episode 29, I think, of throwing it out and doing something yeah. else. Yeah. When you played the deleted scene with the log lady, that to me is... The most fascinating, one of the most fascinating deleted scenes or changed scenes out there, because it gets right to the heart of, in my mind, the difference of how uh, Lynch and Frost see Cooper. As mm-hmm. Frost writes the scene, the log lady comes to Cooper. He just doesn't know what to make of her. He turns to Harry and kind of gets Harry's seal of approval, and then he's like, "Well, yeah, I guess we can go off with her." Uh, and, and you know, you see the same thing in episode five, which is written by Mark Frost alone, where they go to her cabin and she slaps Cooper's hand. And he just kind of doesn't Mm -hmm. get, like in his uh, writing, Cooper is a very talented character, but also sort of a flawed, very human character, kind of trying to figure out and navigate this world that he's not Mm -hmm. a part of. With Lynch writing it, or Lynch directing it, he throws out the dialogue. He obviously comes up with a much more poetic, the owls are at the roadhouse. Mm. Um, But then he has Cooper kind of nod and just kind of get onto the same wavelength as her. And the roadhouse, something is happening, isn't it? And she says, yes, yes, (laughs) he understands. And they go off together. And that right there, that little change to me says everything about this push and pull between the the creators and their vision of the main character that I think in some ways ultimately results in the split in him that we see Hmm. for the rest, you know, for season three, the Hmm. whole premise of season three.
2: No, it's a, it's a good point. It really is a good point. And yeah. I, I mean, it's fundamental. Um, Frost saw Cooper one way and, and Lynch, I, w- I would say, that, you know, completely opposite, but Lynch, you know, allowed the character to be just a lot more intuitive and kind of, you know, move according to his own whims. Yeah. And Frost is, is looking for motivation and, mm. and writing it in and trying to steer the, like letting the plot in some way steer the character a little more. So it's mm-hmm. a great point. Yeah. Well,
0: it's so good to have you all and but before we go i'd love to uh, josh and john you both have a new podcast i'd love to hear about how it got started and what it is what it's all about
2: yeah i'll, I'll make this real real quick um i just you know it uh josh had tweeted something out and uh i kind of responded to it and it just sort of seemed like it was it was early march we were all stuck in our houses we couldn't mm-hmm. go anywhere and i said let's do a podcast or what you know i I might not have said that explicitly, let's do something. And so it just turned into this, I thought, In Our House Now was a was a great title for everyone who was quarantining. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe title. continuing to do for months to come. We'll see. I hope not, but we'll see what happens. Um, and so we just... Decided we would uh, pick a topic um, and kind of explore it, you know, somewhat organically. We, we're not always sure where we're going to end up. We do plan them, we do think them through, and talk about them, but we also leave it to be something that's more of a like a you, or, you're listening into our telephone conversation kind of approach to to what we do. What, what do you think, Josh? Yeah, I would say you know we
5: we theorized that it could be a safe place where people can come in with very few preconceived notions. You know, John's written a lot. I've written a lot. We kind of both agreed to set set that aside. And, you know, Bob Dylan has a great uh, theme time radio series where he'll pick a theme like mothers and fathers and he'll and every song will be about that theme and that's kind of mm-hmm. what this grew into but each theme grows out of the one we talked about before so uh it's it's a really fascinating way to watch two people kind of mentally deconstruct their preconceived notions about their return and i feel like you know we we've moved mm-hmm. each other with with uh, up that neither one of us had thought of before. And we've invited guests on. You guys are all invited whenever you, you feel a hankering to talk about a particular theme. And uh, I also think it's also a place where we can push each other and stretch. So you know, like John's struggling mightily right now with Audrey. You can see it on his face, He's, it's, it's right there. And we're going to work that out. Now. It's a place where here, it's like a gym. Here it is.
3: guys don't know.
5: He's, he's, but, he's mentally lifting weights with Audrey right now. We're, we're going to see that come to fruition in a couple weeks. I think it's exciting. I think it's a, a really interesting way to dig into the material in a way that I don't think has been. It, here's my room. Audrey wow.
2: writing right there. Nice.
0: Wow, I love <laughs> that. I can't we're wait to, to listen to this I need to be able to get closer to see this. <laughs> <laughs>
5: So thank you guys for uh, for asking us about that. Yeah. yeah,
1: I'm I'm very excited. And every time you guys drop a new episode, I promptly post it on our Facebook page. In um, yeah, our house Appreciate now,
0: it. It can, it's on uh, iTunes, right? I mean, where's Spotify, the best iTunes? We have it on Anchor, is actually where we're hosting it at, which is
5: where Michael Moore does his podcast, and I'm yeah. really impressed with that. So great great platform for anyone who wants to start podcasting for very very cheap.
0: Nice. Yes. And joel, you've started the journey through twin peaks uh season three now you're you that yes the videos are going now yes, it's been sort of uh
3: crazy on that front because I put out um a couple i, I introductory leading up to season three, and then I had to skip a couple that I had planned and postpone' them till till June or July because um I wanted to put up my video on season three a full half hour just on season three on the anniversary of the premiere. Mm -hmm. And uh, I miss, I got a little bit up on that date and then got the rest. And then I get hit with a copyright thing because of Wicked Game by Chris Isaac. Uh. So it got blocked. Then it was up. Now it's blocked again and I'm disputing it. So it's going back and forth and I still have to create the two postponed chapters. So that's the crazy part. The listeners don't need to, I'll, I'll figure that out. You just, subscribe and follow and you'll see when it comes up but I'm on lostinthemovies.com uh, at lostinthemovies and at Journey Peaks that's my Twin Peaks focused Twitter right now at Journey Peaks and uh, uh, Lost in the Movies on on YouTube with the Journey Through Twin Peaks series and actually on Vimeo as well and I'll use that as kind of a sort of a last statement I guess um, on this episode because we didn't get to talk Unfortunately about uh, Mary Sweeney who cut this episode and I think became one of David Lynch's most underrated uh, collaborators mm. for a dozen years of his career I mean more than a dozen but a dozen where she edited every feature film she wrote one of this films she produced and there is a quality to their work together that you just don't see in any other part of David Lynch's career mm-hmm. I don't know how much of it was his own where he was headed I don't know how much of it was her kind of Feeling for his work and what she brought to it. But, like, if you look at this episode, for example, there's uh, the. I see her two hallmarks as being a humanism and impressionism. And by impressionism, I mean a certain kind of a woozy style to the editing where there's a lot of dissolves and superimpositions and a kind of fl- beautiful fluidity to it that. This is the only Twin Peaks episode like that, I think. Mm. I don't think there's any others where you see the sort of thing like Leland and Bob going in slow motion and the bleariness of it kind of dissolving from one the close up to medium shot as the it's kind of whirling around. And you know, some of that's the camera work that Lynch did, but a lot of that is the editing. And uh, I think she really brought out something fascinating as work. So the reason I bring her up is because Um, If people are going to check out one thing by me now, I'd send them to Vimeo. Check out the half-hour compilation I did of three Journey Through Twin Peaks chapters on Mary Sweeney and David Lynch. Um, Mostly, ironically, not about Twin Peaks, but about their feature collaborations and the work he did before and after. It's called Dream Souls, David Lynch and Mary Sweeney. And uh, it is one of the things I'm happiest to have created because there's just not much out there on their work together at this point and to actually engage with the clips themselves talk about them let them play a little bit sort of juxtapose his Twin Peaks episodes to his feature films and uh, so that's my long spiel but uh, I you know definitely encourage people to check that out Um, it's in three chapters on YouTube and one chapter or one full video on on Vimeo and you can
0: Kind of find the links on my site, which is lostinthemovies.com. dot com. Nice, and nice. and and Joel, we had you on for the the madness uh, Lynch movies, nice. and it came down to Straight Story and Lost Highway, which I believe mm. uh, both
3: Mary Sweeney, yeah, very heavily Mary Sweeney, she wrote one of them. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> nice.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, this is great. Now, those I... are my those are my favorites of his films. I think those four that she did.
0: Great work. Cut, really great. Yeah. Wow, this has been quite this is probably one of our longest shows we've done in a long time. So it's great to have you all on and be able to talk about episode fourteen. And thank you guys so much for your time. And uh let me sorry, let me throw one more thing in. <laughs> I know this is terrible.
3: <laughs> I just remembered. Um I do have a Patreon, patreon.com lost in the slash lost in the movies. And if two and a half hours of me talking with these guys about episode fourteen isn't enough, I just did my four hour rewatch episode on episode 14. So you can go get like three or four more hours of uh, Patreon content on this episode. So sorry, yeah, I have dollar, to
0: mention right? that. <laughs> you can get as little as a dollar, right? And get your podcast. Yeah.
3: that one is $5 a month, but um, the yeah. earlier episodes are, you can get
0: for a dollar a month. So yeah. yes, sorry. Okay, yeah. proceed yeah. proceed with the conclusion. <laughs> all I want to say too is, I want to say uh, thank you to Shaper the Dark Lord for doing all the, all the unseen scenes. Fantastic. This, this, great this job. lockdown that we've been in. Yeah, that
3: was great.
0: Yeah. He's, he did all the voices because it was just so much easier than trying to get all the pink room people together and I, I appreciate him doing that. Thank you, Schaefer. And thank right. you all and I hope we can do this again soon that we can get together again and talk <laughs> more about Twin Peaks.
1: Yeah. And uh, Before we go, give us an email at twinpeaksunwrap.gmail.com Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes. A uh, five-star review would be fantastic or on Spotify and Google Play, and we'll see you guys in a couple weeks.